0: This week's episode of the Cincy Shirts podcast is brought to you by our partners at Christian Moorline. Check out our entire collection of Moorline apparel, including designs featuring Little Kings, Pull, Burger, and more at cincyshirts.com, and just click on the drop-down menu, look for partners, and click on Moorline. And be sure to visit the Logger House at 115 Joe Nuxall Way in Cincinnati, right next to Great American Ballpark. Now, on with the show.
1: This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC
0: Cincinnati This is the Nation Station.
2: You from Kentucky. I'll never forget the
0: Hi again everyone and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 75. Today on our show, Wes and Sam Cowan from Cowan's Auctions.
1: We're going to be offering this uh, October in our American Indian Art Sale a tomahawk that was purchased at a Dayton garage sale for five hundred bucks, and the guy's thinking, "Man, I don't have five hundred dollars. How am I going?" To... And he actually, actually actually had to pay for it over time. You know, Wes is one of
0: the appraisers on Antiques Roadshow, as well as History Detectives on PBS. We talk about archaeology, the area's native peoples, the world of antiques and collectibles, and how the Cowans rose to national prominence. Be sure to listen for the special promo code at the end of the episode for 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Now let's talk to Wes and Sam Cowan.
2: Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati.
2: Once in a while, I'm at... CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati.
1: So, what does this have to do with your business? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, it's all, it's all promotion.
2: It's all... All things Con- content marketing we just create content and hope we get clicks and people yeah, yeah. listen and people you know when they listen to this interview maybe they think about cincy shirts yeah, it, yeah. it's not an advertisement you know we just sit down and talk connection. I mean, you feel free to do yeah. whatever you want at
0: the end though that oh, being, yeah then, uh,
2: we're not uh we're not the step of monetizing quite yet but we're getting about 10,000 listeners a week That's so good, so yeah so if anybody wants to uh be our first sponsor. Let yes. us know. Email <laughs> us at uh, what info <laughs> yeah, at Cincy t-shirts. T-shirts. Yeah. Com.
0: Put sponsor in the. If,
2: if your company wants to, uh, so
1: this, be the first. So this is this is all you need to do. This is a microphone, basically, and you're wired in with a your, computer your, and some little software. Yep. And yeah, I did a podcast um, with a uh, dealer, an American Indian art dealer in Tucson, Arizona this summer. And he had a little bit more elaborate. Thing. I mean, he had a you know, room, but it was video yeah. too. He
0: had a, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. a video
1: thing. Uh, so, you know, interesting. No, people do them on airplanes, hotel rooms. You can do it uh, Hey man, yeah, a, wherever. I've, got, I've got a place up in Michigan that I think I can do one. that would be fun. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we
2: some yeah. We just got the one mic. There's no, there's no soundboard. There's no, uh, yeah, not, not everyone has their own individual mic or headphones or anything yeah, right, clunky right, like right, that. Right, We're right. just, so there you go. Yeah, and people okay. can hear it. And there's much more expensive ways we could do this. Yes, but like I said, Maybe we're not monetizing we yet. We're just uh
1: we're just shooting right the breeze. Now. I like the yet.
2: Yeah, like
0: the yet. that's good. Yeah. Yeah. seems like yep. pretty good. That's yeah. the magic number. Yeah, we're like at nine thousand and change. So uh, I think we want to. We're approaching people that are. You know, because it's, it's a focused audience. It's people that are interested in Cincinnati, basically. Even mm-hmm. though, I mean, if you're a baseball fan, go back and listen to the Pete Rose episode. Have
1: you guys talked to Molly Wellman yet? Yes. Yeah, she was on here. She's uh, such a booster. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: she she moves the meter, does she?
1: She's such a or, booster, and uh, for you know, I mean, she just loves Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, we've had Johnny Bench on, Bronson Arroyo. Uh, who else? Cool. Pat, oh, Pat, Pat Barry was Pat a killer one. Oh, oh yeah, and we week, see, you? Uh he Amy Asbeck, actress. She's from Blue Ash. Yeah. Uh, scrolling back through here, let's see. Uh, the guys from Arnold's Bar and Grill. Are now, on, those guys
1: uh, all come in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've done a awesome. few. This
0: more, is... Our neighbors over at our Loveland store—they own a big record shop. They're across the street from us. We're probably going to go to their place because they have—they have actually a, a music space upstairs from the store. Uh-huh. So we'll probably go there, and I'll, I'll have to lug all this over there. But that's not. It's
1: so not when, would, when did you guys move here? Because the bike shop used to be here.
2: Yep. Yeah, we've been. It'll be three years in October coming up. Really, that long? Yeah.
1: Now, can I special order stuff from you guys? Always. Like Cowan's hats and T-shirts and that sort of thing.
2: We can get that sorted. Yeah. Yep, we do custom stuff. Yeah. We don't say no to anything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're T-shirt guys, and it might uh, end tomorrow. (laughs) So, but for now, hey, like it, like the Hawaiian shirt, rocking that. It's summer,
1: man. Come on
2: that's awesome i thought you'd be in an indiana jones hat and having a whip and uh, <laughs>
3: well, right, well, you know it was an archaeologist before <laughs> yes uh, yeah
2: that's what, us. that's what i heard so let's uh
1: gave that up a long time
2: ago yeah digging in the dirt and uh yep. finding all that stuff so how so we, what time period was this or what are we in the mesozoic are we no like how <laughs> when, when were your archaeology days
1: well, uh, you know, I, uh, I grew up as a kid in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, was always interested in stuff. Uh, I had a little museum when I was a kid in our house up on the third floor that I had, you know, deer antlers and fossils. And one day when I was about 10, um, a neighbor of ours gave me a little stone, chipstone arrowhead. And I thought, man. That is a totally the most cool thing I ever seen. Who, who made this? How could this thing be? And so that really launched me on a, a childhood fascination with archaeology, and that was uh, um, fed uh, not only by my mother, who was you know great to you know I- indulge me and you know take me to places where she where we found out that arrowheads could be found and that sort of thing. But I also um, had a lot of relatives in Western Kentucky who were farmers and I worked on the farms in the summer and was finding arrowheads in the plowed fields of Western Kentucky when I was a kid and um, so by the time I uh, went to college I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist I had uh, actually worked at uh, worked on a dig with the University of Kentucky when I was 15 and uh, I was surrounded by all these graduate students and uh, learned how to drink beer and do all this kind of stuff. You know, that nice. You're you're not supposed to be doing when you're 15, uh, but yeah, of course everybody no. does. But uh, so by the time I um, went to college, I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I uh, got a BA and an MA from the University of Kentucky uh, in anthropology because archaeology in the United States is considered part of anthropology. Um, Went to the University of Michigan, then got a Ph.D. Was very interested in um, um, paleoethnobotany. That was my specialty. Um, Paleoethnobotany is the sort of uh, the study of the interrelationships between past human populations and past plant populations. So within that sort of discipline, so I was studying plant remains from archaeological sites and what I was really interested in was the transformation of people who were foragers to then horticulturalists and then finally agriculturalists, in other words, going from people who were strictly getting their food from hunting and gathering to then little gardening and then to field agriculture. And um, got my degree uh, from there, taught at Ohio State University. Imagine that going from oh, Michigan yeah, to from Ohio Michigan. State. It was like, oh, I don't know about this. but yeah. So um, taught there for three <laughs> years and then came here and was the curator of archaeology for, th- for 11 years at the Museum of Natural History here. And uh, to me, um, it, it, with my interests, this was a great place to be, because um, there are lots of agricultural, prehistoric agricultural communities that could be examined right here in the Ohio Valley, and particularly here around Cincinnati, very rich history of that. So for 11 years, that's what I was doing, working on those projects, and uh, then uh, opportunity came up uh, to leave the museum to um, uh, get back to sort of my roots of collecting and, you know, antiques and that sort of thing. And so uh, in 1994, I left the museum and started my, my auction company. Nice. It's just like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's. it's, it's, it's there's more to it than that, but I don't want to bore you. Yeah, with it. I feel like so, I'm talking too much already. Did you get bored with
0: archaeology and wanted to do something new, or did you? Just, did, you have, did your love of antiques take over no, the archaeology?
1: Oh, that's a great question. No, I didn't get bored, and I still uh, I don't follow um, uh, developments in the archaeological field as much as I used to. But um, no, I had a great career. I loved it, and I had a great time had, uh, you know, a a good track record in publication, and, you know, felt like that I was sort of the top of my game there, but, you know, you got to remember, I felt like I'd been an archaeologist since I was in high school, and um, while I was working on writing my dissertation uh, at the University of Michigan, as many graduate students do, they get bored of doing that, and they look for excuses not to write their dissertation. So I started going to uh, antique shops in southeastern Michigan and sort of reconnecting with my childhood roots and discovered 19th century and early 20th century photographs. You know, I'd walk into an antique shop and there'd be a basket of these photographs and I could pick one out and there'd be a photograph of a Civil War soldier or some town, you know, out west or whatever. And man, I was just like pulled right into those those pictures and wanted to know more. And so by the time I took my first job, I already had sort of a little sideline business of buying and selling 19th century, early 20th century photography. So, you know, and I kept that up when I moved to Cincinnati from Ann Arbor. Um, So flash forward uh, 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 about 10 years later, I was approached to do a a big appraisal of a 19th century photography collection in Louisville Kentucky Uh, I did the appraisal and then the uh, law firm said well you know now what do we do with it and I said why don't you let me sell it at auction for you so sold it at auction it was a great auction and uh, then I had six months later I had a you know another auction Uh, and uh, at that point I said you know what this is so much fun I'm having such a great time doing this uh, that I just said, you know what? See you later, Museum of Natural History. And left with really no regrets. You know, I mean, I, I love my job. It was great. I have nothing bad to say at all about working for the Museum of Natural History. It was a blast. But nothing beats working for yourself. Nothing beats working for yourself.
2: <laughs> and it just happened, too. That's nice. You know, it's not like you had to force it.
3: Sounds yeah. like you're just able to say, hey, and now it's time let's
2: do this
1: turn the page do something else
3: yeah i think it's really reassuring for someone like myself who you know doesn't know my own future in the business you can always just pick up and do something else and become successful at it in the age so yeah
1: yeah proud of you for that (laughs) no that's true i I think uh you know the 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 old adage you know if you don't try it you don't get anywhere and you know no risk no gain and uh you know clearly i'm i'm sort of the poster child for that i guess that you know, I found something that I really liked. I was really, you know, be- had become passionate about it. And I had two passions that, you, you know, you just couldn't compete. You couldn't do both of them at the same time. And, you know, so I'm very fortunate.
0: So on the archaeology side, you're saying this is a, g- a great place to be an archaeologist because of the, I always get them all mixed up, the Hopewell and all the other uh, pre Yeah, you know,
1: I mean, the Ohio Valley is a, is a great, a great place for anybody interested in archaeology. And, uh You know, people entered the Ohio Valley probably 15,000 years ago, and they were here until we pushed them out in the, you know, 1790s, and uh, with their final removal from Ohio in the 1820s or 1830s. But so you can look at the evolution of everything that I was interested in. I could look at right in our backyard. Um, I I became, uh, yeah, particularly interested in the the people that were here from about, (coughs) 1200 AD to about 1600 AD, that collectively archaeologists call the Fort Ancient peoples, um, who, were, who were maize agriculturalists. These people depended upon corn, beans, squash for their livelihood. And uh, uh, the Little Miami uh, River Valley, the Great Miami River Valley, the Whitewater River Valley all have villages of these people that show their evolution from about eleven, twelve hundred 1200 AD through their really sort of devolution in the 1650s, right before humans, right before white people started coming to the Ohio <clears throat> Valley. It was great. I mean, it was all here, you know, and uh, the museum, um, uh, working at the museum, I could do whatever I wanted. As long as I raised the money, I could do whatever I wanted and, uh, um, so that's more than
2: just finding cool stuff to put on the shelf for people to come see.
1: Like, no, there, no, there's, it's, there's it's, more it's, behind the scenes, and than... oh, it's it's a, it's a total. It's yeah, it's a huge. Um, it's 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 more than just going out and finding stuff. Yeah, um, you know, and I should point out that the Museum of Natural History has continued that program to this very day. Um, Bob Genheimer, who is the Riva Show Curator of Archaeology mm-hmm. at the Museum Center, every year for probably the past ten years has worked at an archaeological site um, near Newtown. Uh, I don't know if you guys know. That's oh, my next question. The Han Field.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a question about that.
1: Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know they're they're uh, they're continuing the work and continue to add to the information yeah.
2: they're right out there right now digging
1: i yeah, think they do that in there. july they're out there right now
0: yeah i live uh about two miles as the crow flies from that site yeah so i'm wondering what are the odds that those native peoples were like in my yard because <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna it's i have a wooded lot yeah. part and there's a, uh, there's a creek, start digging the there's, there's little stream up, that's what i want to ask i have a little <laughs> stream that goes to a it empties into a creek i think it's eight mile creek and then that empties into the little miami so i'm thinking it's a there's, there's a stream back there maybe they were you know
1: well they could have been. off deer that what they, they? they could have been back there hunting who knows
0: so but but i mean a two mile radius is probably sure
1: the, oh yeah yeah, oh. yeah. getting yeah. my shovel when i get home man yeah. <laughs> well i hope you don't take a shovel i would not uh recommend oh, what do you that, recommend i wouldn't recommend that anyone uh, decides that they can be an archaeologist on them by their by themselves and um Certainly digging uh, by yourself is is not good because, you know, if you think about it, our, the process of an archaeological excavation is a destructive process. I mean, uh, we're destroying things as we dig. Now, the difference between what you're proposing and what Bob Genheimer and his crew are doing <laughs> on, on field is they're recording everything that they do, and they're doing it in a very controlled manner Versus something you might do, taking your shovel. Just take and going my spade and yeah, yeah, yeah haven't yeah. had it. All right. Well. So it's, it's <laughs> in an archaeology, everything um, the context in which you find things is very important. Yeah, uh, things relate to one another in the ground, and if you destroy that context, you lose all this information.
0: Yeah, yeah they told me at Serpent Mound, and they they knew that some of the mounds were from separate cultures because of what was found in them and what was found above and below them, and all that. Exactly. Thing.
2: Yeah, you got it, man. Yeah. So do you know like, do you, with the internet and everything, do you have a bunch of knuckleheads trying to send you stuff that you're like, wait a second, you obviously took this from some burial ground, or this this doesn't make sense, or like at what point do like especially like Indian artifacts, at what point do those become someone's possession, or
0: should everything just be handed over to a museum like Indiana Jones would want you, you to? Yeah, I read a news story about that. There are some Native peoples that want some of, they want their stuff back.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a that's a good question, and um, there are um, there are mi- several Facebook groups that are devoted to people that collect American Indian artifacts. One of which uh, has, I think, over seventy thousand members. So there are a lot of people out there, you know, walking plowed fields and scouring riverbanks and picking up artifacts off the. Off the surface of the ground, um, and, and keeping the artifacts, and we live in the USA, man. The personal property rights are a big deal. So um, I don't see that. I don't see that um, the federal government is going to. Um, the long arm of the feds are going to ever reach into your pocket and say you can't keep something that you found on your personal property or on someone else's property as long as you have permission you know, if you don't have permission to be walking around on somebody's property, that's trespassing. So, yeah. um, my advice to anybody that wants to collect this stuff is, A, don't dig. If you want to pick it up off the surface of the ground or, you know, washing out of a river bank, get the permission of the landowner because the landowner can prosecute you for trespassing if you don't. Hmm. Um, The issue of Native Americans wanting things returned uh, has really been solved partially by uh, a law that was passed in the late 70s, the Native American Graves Repatriation Protection Act, or NAGPRA, as it's called, uh, that requires uh, any institution that receives federal funding or federal licensing to inventory the um, archaeological and and Native American materials that they have and if they have certain classes of things like if they came from a grave, if they're a sacred object, if they are an item that's considered an item item of uh, cultural patrimony and by that I mean something that could never be so important to a group that could never be alienated from them that they needed this for ongoing um, their ongoing identity, then the, the federal institution or, the, or the, the group that's getting a federal license or funding has to report that stuff to uh, the Native American group, which, you know, might claim it. If they claim it, then, if, particularly if it's a federal institution that, or an institution that receives federal funding, they're requir- the institution is required to enter into negotiation with the tribal group, has to be a federally recognized tribe another uh, by the way uh, and then return those things if the, the tribe says we got to have them after some negotiation there's a panel as, as you might expect that reviews all these applications but so that exists that whole issue of um, who does this stuff belong to exists
2: yeah and I mean or how do you even validate not not even just with Native American stuff but you know, anything that you come across, like a you know, an old, old painting or uh...
1: well, and that, that's a yeah, that's a great question. It's you know it is uh, uh, it all boils down to who owns the past, who owns who owns things, and uh, can these things be alienated from their owners? And of course, the business that I'm in now with antiques, you know, stuff gets alienated all yeah. the time. You know, stuff comes in and out of Ownership, you know, all the time. So that's continuing. Just gotta trust people, right? Mm-hmm. It's is so easy to do in this.
3: It's wonderful. a very untrustworthy business. <laughs> um, I you think. know, we get a lot of business because we are known as being trustworthy people. But um, you know, if, if when you know. More information about people's objects and what they're worth. There can be some gray areas where, you know, people take advantage of you. Yeah.
2: So is the majority of your business estate sales or where the auction
1: items come from? from, Go go ahead, Sam. You you know this as well as I do.
3: Um, A big misconception is that, you know, we own the property. We don't. It's all on consignment. So... I would say half come from collections or estates. And then every day, somebody will bring something in, maybe just one painting or, you know, a handful of objects. But it really depends um, where it comes from. But, you know, usually you want the good collections and you build relationships with the owners. That way, when it comes time to sell, um, you know, you'll handle their collection at auction.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think of it, most people don't, um, I don't think understand very well how auctions work but we are a, a service industry we're a personal service industry uh, you have something that you want us to sell for you so we act as a sellers agent to market catalog photograph etc cetera, etc cetera, their property to their to the sellers best advantage we take a commission from the seller, but the majority of the money that is made from a sale goes right back to the seller. So we're we're dealing with uh, property from estates, uh, from collections that are being liquidated, uh, from divorces, courts, lots of court cases, court ca- court settlements, yeah. Um, And, and more and more, um, people that are downsizing, people that are downsizing. Don't laugh. We've sold, we've sold that kind of stuff before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it used to be that the, um, uh, the auction, auctioneers would say we get our stuff from death, divorce, and uh, disaster. Now it's death, (laughs) divorce, disasters, downsizing, people, uh, getting rid of their collections. And, and the baby boomers, of course, Uh, um, as as more and more of those folks were retiring every day and moving and dying, all the stuff that they accumulated throughout the 60s and 70s, and and by the way, the the, the real heyday of the antique market in the 20th century is a post-World War II phenomenon. It all began with the baby boomers, or all accelerated with the baby boomers. Well... All those guys are now retiring or dying and downsizing and all that stuff is being coughed up onto the market now. Huge amounts of property.
2: Yeah, the war stuff is kind of uh, fascinating. My my mom, her uh, or my grandpa actually, was in the Battle of the Bulge and he has a big Nazi flag that he brought back. And that Nazi flag is in my mom's basement. And I'm kind of like, huh, that's really cool, but... We're not going to go fly that around outside, or we're not going to display <laughs> Probably this. Probably a good idea. Wear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like, that has to be worth something. But who? I don't know. Is, is that something that someone's going to... I don't know. It definitely has a historical value. It was obviously used in, you know, a
3: famous American war, World War. So,
2: yeah, yeah where's my Nazi collection going to go?
3: You'd sell it at uh, <laughs> one of our military sales. I mean, it's... it's we People who aren't familiar with it, mostly wives whose husbands collected it, Or were GIs that brought it back? I mean, when we liberated Europe, for one, the Nazis marked everything, the Germans. They're highly meticulous with, uh, you know, serial numbers and putting their stamp on everything. You know, Adolf Hitler, all of his his silverware had, you know, a swastika and was engraved and all that stuff. So, you know, when they liberated Europe, they'd just rip anything off the wall to bring it back as a souvenir. Um, Certainly not, you know... uh, glorifying nazi culture or anything like that it was just a a trophy to bring back from war and so when it falls to the kids and you know we get a lot of questions can we sell this can we own this and it's it's still collected we'd like to think by you know historians and other people who'd like to own a piece of history and it is history you know there's definitely things we won't sell for moral reasons but uh you know I, i think it's got a story to tell and it's important so yeah Sell the flag at Cowan's.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, the common misconception is that uh, the people that collect this stuff are, are Nazis or neo-Nazis. And and I'm not saying that there aren't some, because yeah. there may be, but I have never shied away from selling this material because I don't believe that we can sanitize or uh, otherwise edit our historical past. I don't think we should. Uh, and, and the fact is the people who buy the stuff in our firearms and military sales, they're collectors of you know, history. They're preserving this because of history. And as Sam pointed out, every duffel bag that came back from Europe had something in it, some souvenir that some GI liberated uh, while he was overseas, whether it was a flag or a Nazi dagger or some medals or a piece of art. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, our guys were bringing it back home and and there's a lot of that material that's still being kept by families today and this is something that soldiers since time immemorial collected they collected souvenirs of their vanquished foes and and that's what you have to think of your nazi flag I guess it's a it's a souvenir from a vanquished foe
2: yeah now how uh, when it comes to appraising I mean, I guess you put it at auction so it sells for whatever it's worth, right? Mm-hmm. You, so, so one, what if you didn't market the auction well enough and, you know, maybe maybe so you have some super unique piece that maybe just the right collector didn't find out that you guys were selling? Like, I don't know. how's that work with, like, the pricing? Like, where do you start out a piece? Like, uh, obviously, if you have a Picasso, you have some sort of idea, but, you know, there's all this stuff that, uh, you know, it's so cool, but I don't know. I guess there's a history of... Uh, you know, stuff by those artists or that time period selling that you kind of refer to, yeah, or just seems to
3: be so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I start pricing stuff, I look within the last five years. Anything over that is irrelevant because it's a market, it goes up and down. And what are people paying for it, you know, recently? There's different sites you can check um, that aggregate sales from all auctions all over the world for, uh, uh, what we call comparables, um, just comparing that. A lot of it's just your own knowledge.
2: It's like the price guide, the,
3: Be- the Beckett Something price Something like guide that. But bill? again, you know, in the past they used to have like uh, antique price guides and stuff like that. Throw that out the window because it's the baby boomers are dying and, and for certain things uh, prices are changing. But, um, yeah, a lot of it when coming up with a high-low auction estimate. First off, the estimates in some cases are a little on the conservative side because you want to attract bidders. Yeah. Why do people come to an auction? The illusion of a deal. However, when you sell at auction, it's the most pure form of seeing what the value is because people are going to. It only takes two people to bid it up until, uh, you know, someone backs out. That being said, we do pre-sell items, meaning contact collectors and say, hey, we've got this coming up to auction. I mean, first things first, we're working for the seller. We want to get them the most amount of money that we possibly can. So, you know, it all comes down to marketing, um, contacting collectors, uh, museums, if they've got the money. That's where the catalog comes in. We send it out to our extensive mailing list. And just the fact that we have all our auctions on up to four different internet platforms, in some cases, you can just let the internet do its job. I don't like to, to... rely too heavily on that but depending on your market it's made
2: our whole lives exactly you know (laughs)
3: people people have on all these websites they can just have an automated search that'll alert them whenever something they want to collect comes up for auction so um and that's really changed the 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 business over the past couple years even my own involvement in it but um you know again we don't like to rely completely on the internet but yeah. If there's a buyer for everything and they'll find it one way or another,
1: Man. you know, in the, uh, in, in terms of how do we, uh, how do we appraise the stuff? Um, when I first started, uh, in the business nearly 25 years ago, you know, pre-internet days, uh, yeah. and there, it was, it was much more difficult to determine values other than sort of anecdotally well you know we sold one five years ago and it brought x and you know uh here's a publication where they talked about selling the same thing you know two years ago but the internet as it has everything has just turned the auction business on its head uh today there are a number of sites, as Sam alluded to, that do nothing but aggregate auctions. You know, you can go on some of these platforms and see a hundred auctions at one time. And uh, they have uh, on the same platform all the past sales records that they've conducted. So there are now um, uh, sites that are available where you can look up literally millions of, pro- of sales, and wow. you know, let's face it, guys. Ninety-nine percent of the things that the average American thinks of as an antique um, were made in factories to satisfy the demands of an emerging middle class. And so, there's a lot of it. A lot. I mean, there there are a lot of these. You know, holding up for those of you who can't see. I'm you know, holding up a Cincy glass. You know. Yeah. I mean. How many cincy glasses could you find? You know, if you just typed on our
2: base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that one makes an antique (laughs) because no one bought it. But the (laughs) but but but
1: the but (laughs) the point is, for most of the things that any fine arts auction company sells, there's a comparable somewhere. What becomes challenging is when you find something. For which there are no comparables, yeah. and uh, what those what are on history. Or those something. are those are the fun things. So, for a few years, a few years ago, we had the uh, great privilege of selling uh, the presentation grade pipe tomahawk of Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark. Wow! This was a tomahawk that was. That he probably, it was an extremely fancy tomahawk, he probably had it made in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. And whether he had it while he was an officer before Jefferson asked him to go up to the Missouri River or not, it's the kind of thing that he could easily have had. But had his uh, had his initials on one side and on the other on one side of the blade and then his initials of his half sister on the other side of the blade Man. there's only one of these things nothing yeah. could talk so right. so how do you know what that's worth yeah you know you don't know what it's worth you just say okay I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna shoot for the stars with that and and we did and we sold it for a million dollars Wow privately which is, yeah I have this. You want to buy it? It's a million dollar million dollars guy got on it, flew in on his private jet, paid us, oh, and a away minute. it yeah, went.
3: Yeah, just Google search. So can... so, oh, okay.
2: So you always hear about like Bill Gates, and I'm um, I'm sure you know Jeff Bezos, all these super rich guys everybody knows. Do you guys have those type of uh, of, course. of clients? Absolutely. You can call Bill Gates right now and be like, Hey, what's Not up? I got Bill, this.
3: Uh, but uh, someone this in his network bank account. You know, same price <laughs> point, certainly. Um, and it's that's a fun part of the business. I'll never name any name, but it, yeah. it's interesting to see, like, oh, they're this person's <laughs> collecting that. Um, uh, I mean, half the fun of the business is getting to know these collectors because if you devote your life to aggregating something that doesn't exist anymore, you're a bit of a weirdo, but um, in a good way, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, I think they're really fun people. And that's what I like a lot about the business as well as just kind of the, the hunt for, you know, it's a treasure hunt.
1: Yeah, We we, we certainly have our share of millionaire and billionaire clients. Mm-hmm. And um, some, are, some are, you know, really fun. Some are really difficult. But, you know, hey, man, you just you deal with them all in turn and. Really, the the guys that have the money can be, the guys that don't have the money can be just as passionate about the work they're collecting as the guys that do. Yeah. So, So most of the people are are people collecting, are there young guys that are actually looking at stuff
2: as investments that they're going to flip and make all this money later? Or do most of them collect it just because they want that, you know, that old coffee mill that, you know, they think's cool? Uh, I mean, what kind of mentality? Uh, goes into you know
3: the, the people buying the stuff. If, if you're buying something from one of our auctions, you have to know something more than one of our staff members because it, you're not going to get a, a deal for it. Not in all cases necessarily. Yeah. I think the people who are looking hey, at antiques as, as an investment, you know, <laughs> there's still outlets where there's not internet access, and you know you have to go and know more than what the seller is selling it for. Um, you know, estate sales, uh, tag sales, the internet's a double-edged sword, um, for buyers and sellers. It's better for sellers cause you get more marketability, but for buyers, you know, like I said, auctions historically, it's the illusion of a deal. Yeah. So it's hard in a lot of cases to buy things at auction and flip it immediately. Um, you know, if you know someone will pay the price, sure. Why not? But, uh, I, I think the majority of people buying from us are collectors and it's people who are going to appreciate it, certainly. Um,
1: I would say that when you, when you look at um, who buys from Cowans, and really you, you, you can, with, with just about any auction of our, any auction company of our level uh, uh, in, the, in the business, uh, and we can talk about that in, in just a <laughs> second. There certainly are people that are dealers that buy from us that are looking to buy something for a reasonable price and then sell it. There are people who are buying for, uh, on account, buying for a customer that we may not know, a dealer that may be buying for a dealer or for a private collector and we don't know who the collector is. There are a certain number of people that are retail buyers and you know, it's a good mix, and you have to have uh, that mix. You have to have people that that feel like we can that are dealers that are buying things to resell, and you have to have to drive the prices. You've got to have the retail buyer. the The auction business um, in the past fifteen years, and certainly uh, let's <laughs> let's go back twenty five years to when I was. For starting in business, Uh, it's changed dramatically in that um, there are more and more, because of access through the internet to all this stuff that is being sold constantly, there are more retail buyers today than there were 25 years ago. Uh, There are more people that uh, compete and drive prices for their personal collections in their work 25 years ago because they can find it. It's just easier to find now because of the Internet. Um, So, But, you know, that's not to say that, as Sam said, you can't go to a yard sale or a garage sale and buy something and make a lot of money because it happens. But uh, in the U.S., uh, the auction business is a very stratified business, at least the fine arts business, which what Cowens is really in. Uh, there's Sotheby's and Christie's in New York, each of whom sells about $5 billion worth of product on a worldwide basis. Of course, they're headquartered in New York but or London, and they have offices everywhere. But they, they each sell about $5 billion. Then underneath that, there are a couple other companies that sell maybe $100 million, $150 million a year. And then below that, there are about ten companies in the United States, of which Cowens is one, that sells somewhere between ten and fifty million a year. And we're last year we sold seventeen million dollars worth of stuff. So we're we're in that sort of third tier down. Um, we compete with the top two tiers all the time for product, and we love it when we beat them. But that's where the market is. So once you get down below Cowans, there are thousands of auction companies that are selling, you know, a few uh, you know, 20,000 to a couple million a year. And they and they typically don't have the resources to market the stuff and get the yeah. get their products known. So they typically don't get as much of the better product that the bigger houses get. And um, that's where you can find a bargain. Sometimes you uh-huh. slip. They people because people make bad decisions all the time about selling stuff.
2: So if I have a Picasso, do I go go to you guys or do I go straight to Sotheby's?
1: Call us first. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you
2: we'll give you a better deal. I was gonna say you guys. I mean, you got to get there somehow, right? And uh, you want to sweeten sweeten the pot, and you know that'll get you some clicks. And um, uh,
1: to, to give you an example, I'm sure it.
2: you guys have sold plenty of them, right? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. To give you an example of, uh, of, of deals you can get, uh, we're going to be offering this uh, October in our American Indian Art sale a tomahawk that was purchased at a Dayton garage sale for 500 bucks. And the guy's thinking, man, I don't have $500. How am I going to? And he had actually, actually, actually had to pay for it over time before he took possession of it. But this tomahawk. It uh, was probably made about 1750, 1775, and probably again in Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, and it was um, belonged, we think, to a British Indian agent in Detroit who then gave it to a Wyandotte Indian here in Ohio uh, who we know the Wyandotte Indian's name was who was, uh, you know, at the... Uh, Probably at the Treaty of Greenville, where all of the property, all of the Northwest Territory, was ceded to the United States government. But this thing was purchased <laughs> for nothing, and it's mm. the estimate is forty to sixty thousand bucks. So wow. that guy's going to be happy if yeah. we get that lick for him, right? Oh yeah, I'd yeah, say. So you can still get it. It's just harder to do now because yeah. there are more people. Again, I, I come back to the internet. More people have access to information on the internet um than they did twenty five years ago, which enables them through the miracle of Google Google Pipe Tomahawk. You know, oh Cowan's, they sold a pipe tomahawk. They sold Meriwether Lewis's pipe tomahawk. I think I'll call them. Whereas twenty five years ago you wouldn't be able to do that.
3: On the flip side of that with the internet, you know, daily, I'll get a phone call. I saw this on eBay. Do you know how eBay works? You can list it for any price on eBay. That doesn't mean that it was sold for that price. So, you know, going back to the internet, there's a lot of research that we do with books and, you know, old documents that, you know, we can verify the, the provenance and history of stuff. But a lot of people think that they've got something incredibly valuable after looking something at, you know, on Google for like a second. So yeah. th- that gets frustrating sometimes. Um, you want to manage
2: personally. Yeah. You want <laughs>
3: you want to manage people's expectations from the jump, but if they have it in their head that this is a valuable object, they're going to just see dollar signs and not my years of experience and knowledge, Yeah, uh, which happens all the time. And that's okay. Um, you
1: know, I, I think what Sam is pointing out is that don't rely on the Internet for your information, just like you don't rely on Facebook for the real news. Yeah. You know, don't rely on the Internet for information. You go to go to somebody who actually has more knowledge than you might mm-hmm. think they do. And no that way. would be you go to an, you go to an expert yeah. and we're experts.
3: <laughs> and also, if your parents told you that it was valuable Eighty percent of the time, they're lying in this business.
1: Uh. <laughs> they're not lying; they just don't. No, they just, they no. just don't. Yeah, know. Exactly. I, don't really say they're I, lying did, I didn't mean that. Cool.
0: Okay. Does, does an antique have to be a hundred years old? I've always heard that. Is that well, you that know, it, or is that just it, some
1: that? Yes and no. That whole concept of the hundred year date really started with the federal government wanting to collect an import tax, a duty tax on things that were imported. So, and I don't. You know, somebody's going to quote me, but I think it was in the 1880s or 90s. The federal government passed a law said there will be no duty collected on anything that's more than 100 years old. And and nobody pays any attention to that at all anymore. I mean, the 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 concept of an antique is a moving target. You know, things that uh, were uh, um, you know made uh, when I was a kid are now being called antiques. So you know. The antiques and collectibles. I just just say it's an antique or collectible.
3: What's like the newest collectible out there? Street art. Street yeah. art's taking over. I mean hey, Banksy
1: and Banksy uh, those guys.
3: cause um, <laughs> a lot of those. I mean, if you look at some of the recent uh, contemporary art sales at Sotheby's and Christie's, you've got. Uh, a, I've just read yesterday. There's one that I think it was in their their November October one. You know, a Jackson Pollock didn't sell, which is almost unheard of, but. You know, uh, this artist named Cause, K-A-W-S, used to be a street artist, now it's incredibly popular. You know, he set an auction record for for one of his paintings, you know, and that's, people my age, I'm 32 years old, people my age with money, that's what they're spending it on. Uh, unless they grew up with a background and appreciation for antiques, you know, that's why you see these these prices drop in, in you know, American and European furniture that's 200 years old. Yeah. Um, that also i think people my generation aren't collecting antiques they're collecting student loan debt you know what i mean yeah. so it's uh it's it's different i mean we're always trying to get a younger audience back into that but what i see people my age it, it, they're not buying you know rembrandts they're looking for for street art or uh, nostalgia you know think about wow when i was a kid i love transformers yeah. and now that i'm a young adult with money, you know, maybe I'll try and buy some some of those old antiques. So a lot of those antique toys and stuff like that pop culture is getting huge. Um yeah, I, I, it's all over the place. Yeah, Star I mean, Wars
1: figures bringing in 300 grand they and are stuff like that. Yeah. You know, um one of the greatest shocks of my life uh was to um in January I uh, the, um during a week in January there were a number of important uh, um um Americana auctions that are held by Sotheby's and Christie's and some of the other New York houses. And there's a, a huge show called the Winter Antique Show, which is sort of the granddaddy of the antique shows in the United States. But I, I, I go every January to sort of take a pulse on of the market. And imagine my surprise of going to Sotheby's uh, in January and seeing a wall of surfboard, oh, not Skateboard surfboard, ducks. a wall of skateboards. they were selling huh and i immediately took a picture uh with my cell phone texted it to sam and said are you kidding and sam's immediate reaction was well hell yeah these don't you know these things are worth like thousands of dollars a piece
3: several uh it was specifically one going back to street art urban clothing i don't know if i'm categorizing that correctly but that was a collection of supreme skateboards uh, um, Supreme being, you know, this they that's a, the company. They Supreme. were a skate brand, but now yeah. they're in pop culture. Yeah. That you know, they they're kind of famous now for just like putting their logo on anything and selling it, and prices are ridiculous. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Well, and, and Sam, uh, he, he may not collect European f- or American furniture or American antiques, but he has his own contemporary collection, and why don't you tell him about that?
3: Well, I mean, um. I collect a lot of concert posters, um, screen printed posters, yeah. and it just started from going to shows, buying a poster for myself, and then you know buying one that I could sell, kind of just to pay for the weekend. But that kind of got out of control. I, I don't do it as much anymore, <laughs> um, with added responsibility in the business. I'm not seeing fish as much as I used to. <laughs> uh, even though. But I you were there, there week. two weeks
1: ago. Yeah. I <laughs>
3: there last week, um, and you know the the <laughs> merchandise line. Opened at 9.30, I got there at 9.30 and walked right back to the hotel because it was wrapped around the block. I mean, uh, you know, people are rabid for that stuff in their own right. It may not be considered an antique, but uh, a Grateful Dead poster from the, I believe it was... uh,
1: 69, I
3: think. Avalon? I don't recall. It's the one with the skull and roses. That just sold for fifty six thousand dollars. Wow. Like, so if my fish posters that I'm gonna hold on to, yeah. and, you know, sell for that much someday, someday. that'd be awesome. <laughs> um but you know, again, they're made for for people just to get a trinket to remember from the concert. You know, that's why all those old posters had you know, thumbtacks in the corners because people just hung it up in their dorm or oh, in yeah. the house.
2: Well, those old Costacos Brothers posters. You remember those from the 80s with the, uh, um, I don't know, they took all the different athletes and put them in these real cheesy, so like Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, the Bash Brothers with the huge bats and where well, they had, everything was like real punny and I don't know. The, I remember
0: the name. I can't, yeah, that,
2: I can't picture the... They ended up having like a big retrospective uh, show in New York with all these... They're sports posters. Yeah. Um I forget who bought them some some big wig uh, uh Dana White the oh, F- the UFC yeah the black yeah, black yeah, yeah
3: yeah. yeah I think he bought that collection but yeah that, that's crazy mm-hmm. um, yeah, so knock on wood that'll be worth a lot of money someday yeah. well, so, and they
1: and they and when you look at these uh, and and recognize that these some of these bands they might make 50 posters for a gig. And they, um, the band isn't doing it. They're working with the poster artists to do it. And they, these are high quality screen printed, uh, silk screen printed posters. They're spectacular. I mean, they're really very
2: yeah.
1: cool things. They're sort of the epitome of, of ephemera, in other words, things that were not meant to last. Uh, ephemera is the uh, Latin for ephemera, from ephemeros you know, meant for a day. So these ephemeral posters, as long as they're fish fans, and there will be fish fans for many, many years to come, (laughs) and there'll be fish fans that are millionaires who want to remember, yeah, man, I went to that concert on July 2nd at Fenway Park, and it was great. They, you know... Trey Anastasio played played for fifteen hours straight, and you know yeah. they're going to want that fish. poster, and somebody else is going to want that poster, and so Sam, I hope that you uh, end up with a we end up with a gold mine when you're my age. Yeah,
3: hopefully, and some brain cells left too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Win some and you lose some. Yeah.
1: So tell us about the Hollywood
2: days. Yeah. An- how did the TV show come about? Antique Roadshow. To- Hollywood. Uh, what? I was yeah. never in. i associated with Hollywood. Oh, come on. Yeah. We haven't even have even scratched the surface with that stuff yet. Well,
1: I've been. I, I have been fortunate <laughs> to uh, be associated with the Antiques Roadshow and public television for twenty three years now, and uh, as as a one of their featured appraisers on the, on the roadshow, and. Uh, that that really came about when I was about in my second year of business. I saw that the in the in the Cincinnati Enquirer that there was uh, this new public television show coming to Cincinnati called the Antiques Roadshow, and that they were going to be at the convention center and bring your stuff down, and appraisers will tell you what it's worth. And so, I, I said, so I said to myself that that sounds like an interesting concept, and so I picked up the phone. And called uh, WGBH in Boston, which is the which is the public station that produces the Roadshow, and asked to speak to the producer of the Antiques Roadshow, and uh, got this person on the phone and said, "Hey, look, I'm an appraiser in Cincinnati, and I can appraise X, Y, and Z. And do you need any local talent?" Um, this was in the second year of the Roadshow, and the producer said. Yeah, we definitely need some somebody help. Come on down, we'll give you a badge. we'll put you at the books and manuscript table. you know so I showed up and did a couple of appraisals and you've got to understand that this was the first several years, maybe the first three to five years of the road show it was not the cultural phenomenon that it became. The first year they did it, and, and which I wasn't a part of, but no people that were, you know, they might have a couple hundred people to show up. When we were here at the convention center in Cincinnati and it would have been 95 or 96, I guess, there you know, a few hundred people showed up. What was just stupid good luck for me was that I got in at the ground floor because after about five years, when they're... Viewership started to grow and take off on PBS. uh, They started getting not a few hundred people, but several thousand people, 5,000 people, 7,000 people that were showing up, and they had 20 or 30,000 people applying for tickets. So uh, naturally, every auctioneer and appraiser wanted to be part of this action. Uh, at their peak, they were drawing a viewership of maybe 12 to 13 million people every week watching the show. So it was great for me that I got in on the ground floor and they've been very, very loyal to their appraisers. Once you're in, once you're in the door, they, they take care of you. Um, we don't get paid. I pay my own way. Um, but people, people say, well, you know... Why would you pay to go to San Diego, California, and you know hotel, reserve, you know air, uh, airplane, food, all that stuff? And you might spend several thousand dollars. Why would you do that? I said, well, dude, if I was on national television for three minutes on NBC, CBS, Fox, whatever, promoting myself and my business, what would it cost me to do that? Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of <laughs> millions, probably a dollar. So it's it's good business, uh, and every everybody who that's on there uh, recognizes all the appraisers and auctioneers recognize it's good for their business, and it's it's been very good for our business, in terms of our exposure. Don't get a lot of stuff directly from people that I appraise things for on the road show, but certainly get people calling up saying I saw you on the road show. Do you ever
2: guess? I mean, like. I was watching a YouTube clip last night where someone brought you a painting of was it Clementine Hunter or something? Yeah, you were like super knowledgeable about you know everything that this lady's done and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, everyone knows you know the big time artists, but you know coming coming across like you never know what's going
1: to show up. And well, well, keep in mind that um, many of the people. And by the way, Sam is now uh, one of the appraisers on the road show, and we have a number oh, nice. of other people that we're trying to bring along in the pipeline because, you know, frankly... Just uh, do a
2: Cincinnati version. We've
1: been to Cincinnati we, twice. So, <laughs> frankly, the the the, uh, the producers at PBS uh, recognize they need to have younger faces that people are looking at old geezer like me and saying, <laughs> hey, you know, I don't want him around. <laughs> you know, Sam is now on the appraisal team. Keep in mind, though, that guys like me that are on the show, and there are plenty of Grayheads like me, you know, we had 25 years worth of experience. So we're a, a lot of these guys and a lot many are much more knowledgeable than me. They're just walking encyclopedias of this stuff that, you know, but the Internet is a great tool to have because we can do a lot of research with the Internet at the roadshow, and we do it all the time. We used to carry around this huge library. The roadshow did, you know, reference books. Now you just sit down at your computer and do a lot of yeah, homework. You say, okay, do now, a lot of homework. Now done. I can talk but, to you. You, you try yeah. to minimize that
3: because if people knew that they could have just looked it up themselves, that yeah. takes yeah. away from the whole experience. Um, one of the things I love about the roadshow is that I don't see that level of an adult enthusiasm. In a group of 3,000 or however many people show up, old people, everyone's just so happy to be there, regardless of whether or not you tell them it's worth a dollar or it's it's worth memories or something like yeah. that. It's all, It always has a value. But again, people are going there for the experience, and they're just really happy to be there. So uh, hopefully PBS will uh, keep that show around for a very long time.
2: Oh, I'd say. What's some of the coolest stuff you've seen? If like, there's anything that you're just like, holy cow, what... It,
1: What'd you do this summer, Sam? Uh, I mean...
2: Let's not talk about fish anymore. Come on, we're just... Yeah. <laughs> I,
3: I see more interesting stuff through Cowens, uh, more so than the roadshow, because when I worked the roadshow, this is my first year being in front of the camera, but I used to work triage, meaning, you know, you people bring your stuff and say, I've got a, a piece of Indian pottery and a, a folk art painting. And I say, okay, go to that line, then that line, next. So, of the 3,000, I think 3,200 tickets are allotted every year, and you're allowed to bring two objects. So, it's two. It's definitely two. Trust me.
1: Change it to to two. Okay. You would know. Three is why it
3: lasts till eight sometimes. Anyway. um, But you you did
1: something great this summer. Well, what? He's setting you up. I'm trying to set you up, dude. No. What? The silver spoon yeah, I didn't think embraced. that was that
3: cool. I'm t- don't, it's totally don't, No, 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 no <laughs> don't. Uh, and also, you might have to edit yeah. that out. I don't know if Marsha would appreciate, you know, giving away secrets. Oh, okay.
1: Anyway. Uh-oh. You'll have to um, watch. Sam had a very just, cool appraisal. Anyway. Um,
3: I doubt that it will make it to film because uh, as confident as I am, you know, speaking in front of people, I'm an auctioneer. It's, it's my job. You know, um, once cameras started rolling, there there may have been a lot of ums. Yeah, and, uh, uh, my yeah. My but that was my first time. I'll get it over with. Um, <laughs> at the roadshow, you know, uh, uh, that same filming while I was there, you know, a Vietnam veteran brought in a, a Rolex watch worth $750,000, you know, that he had bought when he was in Vietnam, you know, at the canteen or whatever. Yeah. So it, it's cool to see people's reactions in real time. But again... I like doing it through our business because you form more of a bond with that person because it's, there's no cameras, you know, you're just being yourself and giving them, you know, your own knowledge. So any percentage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. But, uh, you know, it's fun. The situations I like the most are when people know nothing about the object. They just want to know if it's valuable at all. And you say, in fact, this is worth a hundred thousand dollars or whatever, you know, so it's fun to see people's reactions and, Let's be honest. I'm the job that I do. You're judging me based on the price. You know, I can market for you in a great way. I can take great care of it, write a scholarly description, take a photograph out of it and send it in a catalog. But if it doesn't sell, you won't keep that in mind. You'll think that, oh, oh, they don't know what they're doing, but it's just the market. So I, I always say we're not curing cancer. I mean, you know, it's a job that money's involved um and ultimately the number of zeros at the end of the check you receive is how are you gonna think i did a good job or not but uh i i do get a great takeaway from when you know i i can help someone that maybe didn't know what it was worth and then that money will really change their life i mean a lot of times you know we're dealing with collections from people who millionaires um So I don't always feel a good sense of accomplishment when, you know, that's the case. Um, I'll I'll work just as hard for anyone in their socioeconomic background, but uh, I enjoy helping people who don't have any idea what they have and then it sells uh, for a lot of money or even just a a little bit of money. You know, it's um, that's, I think you mentioned earlier, um, we're in the business of helping people get rid
1: of stuff. You know, you you um, you asked uh, what was the most memorable thing that you saw on the road show? And I used to be able to rem- I used to be able to remember some of those things. Yeah. But about, uh, you know, about 15 years into the show, uh, you know, I said at the end of the season. I, I found myself that I could barely remember anything that I had praised over the course of the season because it was just really? you know everything's the same. Well, yeah, fifty uh, coffee mills. You know, one. <laughs> I mean, um, one of the things that I that I love to um, uh, that I love to talk about, and I do remember that was a really special thing was, and it will be on uh, I think the five hundredth episode of the Antiques Roadshow, which in Television time is a huge, huge accomplishment, but uh, not my not my appraisal of what the 500th episode. But um, in 19, uh, 98 or something like that. When the Roadshow was in Denver, uh, this Methodist minister from Colorado, Colorado Springs, came up to the table that I was working at, um, and he. I said, what do you got? He said, well, I'm a Lincoln collector and, you know, I've always liked Abraham Lincoln. And so he reaches down and puts these bronze hands up on the table. And I said, oh, yeah, those are, uh, you know, Lincoln's hands. Those were done, you know, casts that were done by, uh, you know, uh, during his lifetime by a guy named Volk, a sculptor named Volk. He said, yeah, that's right. And and I said, well, they're worth, you know, X and Y. And I said, Do you have anything else? He said, yeah. And you know, he reached down and pulled out, you know, and rummaged around into his little bag and then put this other thing on the table. And he set this beautiful marquetry box uh, on in front of me. And marquetry is a, a process where uh, you take different kinds of wood, different Species of trees, and you and you make little pieces of them, and you actually glue them together to make a decorative object. So this was a marquetry box. It's a box that the lid and the sides were all covered with designs of different wood. So oh, that's fine. He said, "Well, open the open the lid." So open the lid of the box, and inside the lid, under glass, was a horseshoe-shaped pink decoration of pressed seaweed which is you know victorians used to do you could press colorful seaweed and it would drop and so it was this horseshoe shape of seaweed pink and then in the middle of it in a pinned and ink hand said this box was made by dr samuel Mudd while he was imprisoned at fort jefferson in the dry tortugas and presented to his guard, Sergeant so-and-so-and-so-and-so in 1867 or something like that. Well, wow. Samuel Mudd was the, for, for those who are listening who may not know, this was the guy, the Maryland physician, who set John Wilkes Booth's broken leg as he was escaping, as he was trying to flee from after he assassinated Lincoln. And Mud, whether he knew Booth or not, uh, he was convicted and sent to prison in the Dry Tortugas for you know, a, a period of time before he was pardoned. And this was one of three known boxes that he was known to have made there. So it was a cool thing. And wow. by the way... It takes a ton
2: of time to make them, too. Wasn't by it? Like by the way...
1: Thing. The expression "Your name is Mud" it comes from Samuel Mudd. Ah, Your name is Mud uh, because it was associated with this bad thing that he did. <laughs> wow, How that's about awesome. That? So, what are history detectives? History uh, detectives grew out of Antiques Roadshow, and it was uh, it was kind of a fun thing. Um, I was um, sitting in my office one day and opened my email, and you know trying to get rid of all the junk. And there was this email from this production company in New York saying, we're starting this new show and uh, wondered if you would like to be one of the hosts of the show. And I thought, "Ah, this is a joke, you know. So I said, well, you know, I'll I'll write them back. I mean, I just said, sure, you know, tell me more. And so I got a call that afternoon from uh, this production company in New York saying that uh, PBS was starting this new show, the premise of which was going to be... You know, the guest has something that was inherited or whatever, and it comes with this story that was passed down with it, and the host of the show would then try to find out if the story is true. And I said, oh, that sounds kind of like an interesting thing. And they said, yeah, you know, we're thinking about calling it America's Attic. Uh, they ultimately changed the show to history detectives because they thought that people would hear it. <laughs> America's addict.
2: <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, there's enough of those shows. Yeah. <laughs> um, <intervention laughs> <and, laughs>
1: so I, I, uh, for 11 years, I was hosted that show along with, uh, initially two other, three other hosts. And, uh, Uh, it was a great pleasure and a great honor for me to be able to be invited into people's homes throughout the United States to hear their family stories and uh, to try to help them discover if this was really true or not. And if the story they have about this glass was with George Washington at Valley Forge, you know, if you could really try to run that down. Like all good things, uh, it came to an end uh, about, you know, I don't know when the last new episode aired, but it was probably five years ago. And I still have people saying, I love your history detectives. I love it. I love watching that show. <laughs> I said, well, you're watching reruns because it hadn't <laughs> been on for like five years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they said, well, when, when are they going to bring history detectives back? And I said, nah, probably not going to happen. But, you know, history detectives' success and the Antiques Roadshow's success spawned pawn stars, American oh, yeah. Pickers, storage Strange wars. Inheritance, Double Storage Wars—all wars, these, all these shows that proliferated on cable—they owe a great debt to History Detectives oh, totally. and yeah, to yeah. Antiques Roadshow.
3: And I hate those shows because anytime <laughs> I tell someone I'm an auctioneer, the first question, the next question's like, "Oh, like uh, American Pickers or Storage yeah. Wars?" Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> or they'll say, "Oh, you talk fast," and it's like, "Well, not really." Can <laughs> you?
2: Yeah. Okay. But you know, um, (laughs) the
1: the, um, um, it 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 shows you. um, I liked history detectives in particular because it tapped into what I think is the average American's interest in history. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people say, "Oh, Americans aren't interested in their history." They are interested in history. They're just not interested in. Um, what I came to discover and call uh, history with a big H, which is, you know, what you learn in your high school or college survey courses, but they're interested in history with a little H. And um, by that, I mean, they're interested in stories that often are attached to their own family. I mean, there are very few people in the United States now that can't go to their house and, see something in their house that somebody from their preceding generation gave them and passed down to them that has a story about their family. Whether it's your Nazi flag, that's Mm -hmm. history with a little h, uh, or your great-great-grandfather's sword that he carried in the Civil War, or you know the glass that you've been told by Aunt Minnie that George Washington used at Valley Forge. I mean everybody in the country or virtually everybody in the country has a story that's associated with something that their family gave to them and has been carried down with them. And, you know, and I like to say that every American, whether they know it or not, they're a curator because they're curating this stuff for the next generation. And where, where our business, which is this sort of strange and interesting intersection between the auction business and that History with a little h curatorial ship intersects is at some point these many of these objects leave the family and they get put into the marketplace and that's where that's where we help we help bring these great stories to wider attention and put into the marketplace. No one has room for them in their tiny homes, or they, or and- they lose interest or, or, <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, the, the the current generations, I don't think, are looking at this stuff as their parents and their grandparents were. Guys who, like Sam, who's thirty, and Sam's not the the archetypal thirty year old, but thirty two year old. Let's be honest um, here. You know, it's way more mature. than Kids move. Have. No, I'm not. <laughs> kids, kids move more frequently now. They um, and. They don't have a big home when they're starting off. Their parents are living longer. So by the time that, you know, your parents are, you know, get ready to get rid of your stuff, you already have a house full of stuff. You know, you don't want the stuff. I mean, there are a, a whole multitude of reasons why why the stuff that formerly was curated by a family is now leaving the family. But again, that's where the auction company comes in.
0: Can you still find stuff at a garage sale, you reckon, or... So yeah, I just, I just... I,
1: I mean, that tomahawk that was yeah. bought in the that, Dayton garage sale. Is that a needle in a haystack, or is that... Oh, well, it's harder, I think, because, you know, as I say, people are armed with more information. The average person would look at that tomahawk and say, Oh, wait a minute, I better find out about that. Some people don't, and they make a big mistake. Hmm. And, and that happens all the time.
2: It's crazy. I
1: think i bring us to a coupon code.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, yeah. yeah, since you guys listen to every episode of the podcast, <laughs> you should already know that uh, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to give us one word or phrase uh, that people listening can go to com. They can plug it in at checkout and save 20% on their whole order. So you're asking, yeah, how do you guys make money at this This coupon code? Just.
1: Onward and upward. <laughs>
2: Onward, <laughs> Onward, Onward
0: and upward. All right. Okay, That's take more it to... than one word. Onward. Onward. We'll, we'll
2: make it all one word. Onward
1: <laughs>
0: we'll one word. Okay. Okay. and, and A- upward.
1: And take it to the bank. Upward. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: cool. Sounds good. Onward and upward. All right. Say it in the stores and the sales clerk will look at you funny, but tell me you listen to the podcast and they'll hook you up.
0: and hey, you guys want to promote real quick? Um, yeah, house. how can we uh, follow you? Yeah.
1: Come and see us at cowens.com on the web, and uh, all of our auctions are listed there. Uh, we'd love to have anybody come by to a live auction and, and see how we work. And uh, certainly if you have things that you think uh, we might be interested in helping you market to an international audience, give us a call.
3: And if you might have something, you can uh, email us at info at com C-O-W-A-N-S, no apostrophe, uh, dot com. And, uh, you know, if you're wondering if it's valuable or you want to sell it at auction, we'll uh, get back to you.
2: Yeah. Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff for you guys above that.
3: We're on Instagram uh, I think. What counts. counts? And Facebook. And Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well yeah. Facebook's about worthless these days
2: but that, that's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, alright, so we'll look you up on the Instagrams there. Uh, but yeah, this is exciting. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks guys. Yeah, thanks absolutely. for having us
1: guys. It was a lot of fun. fun. Cool.
0: Sam and Wes Cowens, you can find Cowens Auctions at cowensauctions.com. You can find uh, episodes of Antiques Roadshow and History Detectives, I believe, on the PBS website. You need to become a member. You can also find it in Amazon Prime Video. Again, I think you need to be a PBS member to watch most of the episodes, but go back and check those out. Or like uh, Sam and uh, Wes said, you can just contact Cowens Auctions if you think you have something that might be of value that you might be looking to sell. So if you haven't already, uh, please go check out the Zincy Shirts podcast archive. Lots of great episodes back there. Uh, Matt Bischoff from Survivor. Gold Star CEO Roger David. Bill median. the guy that founded the Bunbury Music Festival. Uh, He still books it. And let me see, who else is there? Uh, Our our friends from Christian Morline have been on, of course. Uh, Amy Yazbeck, uh, actress from Blue Ash. uh, Movie career, TV career, all that. Our weather friends, Frank Marzullo, Randy Rico. Your old pal, Duke Sinatra. From the Gary Burbank Show, Finn Rock uh, was on from radio, as well as Mel Wegger, And then we had Cash Wright, basketball star Johnny Bench, uh, was on Bronson Arroyo. So check all those episodes out. If there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email. It's now podcast at cincyshirts.com. It's a new email for that. If you want to use info at Cincy Shirts, that's still cool, too. But it'll be faster if you use podcast at com. Put podcast guest in the subject line and then tell us who you'd like to hear on the show. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing, who are from Philadelphia. You can find all their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of fun teams, old restaurants, shopping centers, amusement parks, things like that, and uh, a selection of old video games as well. So there's like some national interest, Stuff There, that goes across cities, It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Onward and Upward, all one word, all lowercase, uppercase. You can alternate the letters upper and lowercase, it should still work no matter which way you type it in. Use that to take 20% off your entire Cincy shirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com order, or you can come into our physical or brick and mortar stores in OTR, Hyde Park, and Loveland and say, Onward and upward, and they'll give you 20% off. Follow our social channels: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a review wherever you get the podcast from, and as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. Hey!